James chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. James chapter 1. There is a, a best-selling English children's book. It's called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Some of you may have read this before. It tells the story of four siblings searching for a bear. And it's an adventure where they travel through grass, a river, mud, a forest, and a snowstorm before coming face-to-face with a bear in a cave. And every time that the children come to an obstacle, they say the same phrase. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh no, we've got to go through it. And the reality is, we are all going through something right now. We feel the pressure. It's the first Sunday of the new year. And a lot of you have goals and dreams and hopes and aspirations for the new year, and seven days into it, it's already derailed. Something's already happened to to get you off track. Last Sunday afternoon, I found out that I had strep throat. I didn't even make it till 10 o'clock on New Year's Eve. I was out. I woke up on on New Year's Day on January 1st and thought, wow, what a way to start the new year. But the pressure's there for all of us. For some, there are marriages that are struggling. Some have received a, a challenging health diagnosis. Some of you are facing financial pressures. Some of you are facing the pressures of uncertainty and big decisions that are looming and you're afraid of making the wrong decision. Some are feeling the pressure of losing a loved one recently. And now you're trying to navigate what life looks like moving forward. And instead of new year, new you, it's new year feeling blue. And we haven't even got into what's going on in our world. We think about other people that we're praying for. We think about other believers and missionaries that we support around the world and and how they're experiencing much worse trials than many of us. And what we're going to discover today is the Bible does not tell us to avoid it. The Bible does not gloss over it. The Bible doesn't tell you that, that, that just pretend that everything's all right, that whatever's going on in your life is just some figment of your imagination. No. The Bible consistently tells us that we all have to go through things that we'd much rather go around. And the longer I'm alive, the more I realize this is true. So we begin a series through the New Testament book of James. And the letter begins, James, a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Now, there are multiple James in the New Testament. Who is this James we're talking about? James here is Jesus' half-brother, his younger brother fathered by Joseph. And he didn't believe in Jesus' claims to be God, to be the Messiah. He joined in with the rest of his family to try to stop him from saying those things. They thought he was a a little crazy. They they were like, hey, hey, you're just our brother. (laughs) Jesus, just, just come back home. So when did James become a believer? Not at the cross. After the resurrection. When Jesus appeared to him again alive. 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to 500 people all at once, and then he adds this detail. And then he appeared to James also, his brother, after stepping out of the grave. And James goes on to become one of the most prominent leaders in the early church in Jerusalem. He's known as James the Just. And this same James writes a letter that is now part of our New Testament. The letter of James may be one of the earliest Christian writings we possess. Some scholars date it between 45 and 50 A.D. We know that it must have been written early because James died as a martyr in Jerusalem around 65 A.D. Enemies threw him from the top of the temple when he wouldn't renounce his faith that Jesus was alive. But, but the fall from the temple didn't kill him. Amazingly, he's lying there on the ground, severely injured when they beat him with clubs. And as he was dying, he says the same words that his older brother uttered. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he says that he's writing to these scattered people. The scattering is happening in, in our world today, just in a different way. We are being scattered. Believers today are being scattered by false teaching. Believers are being scattered by politics and ideology. Believers are being scattered by consumerism. Believers are being scattered by personal preferences. And although we are being scattered, we don't have to be shattered by that experience. What looks like it could pull us apart could actually pull us together and even closer to God if we were to lean into him. And that's what we're going to learn together in the book of James. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Let's read this together as we stand for the reading of God's Word. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. James begins in verse 2 by saying, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Hold on, what? That's not what we were expecting him to say, right? We would expect him to say something like, consider it pure joy when you get the job promotion. 
We would expect him to say something along the lines of, consider it pure joy when the weather cooperates with your family vacation. Consider it pure joy when your kids get along with each other. Consider it pure joy when the doctor gives you a clean bill of health. Consider it pure joy when, when life is easy and smooth and carefree. But that's not what James says. Have you ever gone to a, a dinner or a party and everybody's drinking out of the, the red solo cups? And let, let's say that you pour yourself a, a, a cup of Coke. And you're in a conversation with somebody and you put your cup down and, and you go back and you pick it back up to get a drink and, and you spit it out because, because it's unsweet tea, it's not Coke. Right? Somewhere along the way you picked up the wrong cup and you're like, man, I was not expecting this. That's kind of the feeling we, we get here. James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And it's like, <laughs> I wasn't expecting to hear that. Pure joy. James isn't saying be happy, because happiness is subjective. Happiness is a feeling that, that comes and goes. What James is saying is you can have deep-seated joy. You can rejoice without being happy or giddy or cheerful. It is possible for you to experience profound heartache and still rejoice in God your Savior. That's what Job did after his family was killed. All of his possessions were stripped away from him. All of his livestock was destroyed. He was still able to say in Job chapter 1, verse 21, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That is what it looks like to have joy in the midst of trials. Trials. What's he mean by trials? Does that mean we rejoice when, when anything bad happens to us? Well, what's James talking about? The trials that he specifically has in mind is the suffering and persecution that these believers are experiencing because of their faith in Christ. But it's not limited to that because he says when you face trials of many kinds, it is very broad. It's important for us to note that these trials don't include sinful consequences. That there is a hurt and there is a pain that, that accompanies sin. If your car breaks down and you're in need of a vehicle and you go and you commit grand theft auto or you go and steal somebody else's car and then you get caught, right? And you spend time in jail or you have to pay a fine and you're thinking, I, I just needed a car. Why, why can't I ever catch a break, right? That, that, that's your own doing. He's not saying that you should rejoice in your sinful consequences. But every single one of us experience things that happen to us in life that, that are beyond our control. Things happen that, that are not our choosing. And this passage tells us why, the reason, we can rejoice in such trials. First, James says, trials create perseverance. Trials create perseverance. Again, verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, there is a purpose and there is a progression to your trials. 
In your trial, you look for the test. That there is a testing of your faith. The testing leads to perseverance. The perseverance leads to maturity. We can say it this way. The point of trials is not for you to dwell on what happens to you, but for you to be able to see what God wants to do through you. So often we we get caught up in the trial that we can't see past it. We just think about what's happening to us, and we can't see past the hurt, and we can't see past the betrayal, we can't see past the loss. And never are we told to deny it, never are we told to suppress the hurt. The pain you experience is real. The loss you experience is real, okay? It's valid. It's legitimate. But growth begins to happen when you see that there is something more at work than just your own personal tragedy and hurt. In fact, there are at least three ways in which we can respond to trials. One is that you can let trials defeat you. You can go through a trial and just say, you know what, that's it, I'm done, I give up. And you stop taking care of yourself, you lose perspective on what really matters, and you just start to go through life wandering aimlessly without any purpose. You can let trials defeat you. Another way you can respond is you can let trials define you. Where you say, woe is me. This is just who I am. That This is my lot in life. And so if your spouse leaves you, you're tempted to think, well, that just means I'm not worthy of love. No one will ever love me. I'm just completely unlovable. That This is just who I am. Or if you lose your job, your company lets you go, and you're just tempted to think, I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. I'll just completely always be unworthy. You can let trials defeat you. You can let trials define you. Or, listen, you can let trials develop you. You can allow God to do a good work in your life through these trials. Because God will use the trial to develop something in you that you don't already possess. There may be something in your life. He may develop a resilience in you. He may develop a deeper faith in your heart. He may cause you to to see and experience some things that you otherwise would not have experienced. God will use the trial to make you more like Jesus. The goal is union with Christ, complete maturity. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13 says, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Listen, church, there is a deep work that God wants to do in your life that simply will not happen apart from trials. It won't. Without something that causes you to lean on God, you won't lean on God. You'll lean on yourself. You'll lean on your position. You'll lean on your accomplishments. I love what A.W. Tozer says. He says, beware of any Christian who doesn't walk with a limp. You show me someone who has had a life free from struggle or adversity, and I will show you a person who has not truly walked with God. 
because we are all formed by the fire. We don't like it. It's, it's not the way that we would choose it, but it is how we develop a deep, abiding faith and union with God. So I simply want to ask you this morning, what are you trying to go around that God wants you to go through? What is it in your life right now that you're trying to avoid that God wants you to step into so that you can experience what he wants to do in and through your life? The second reason we can consider trials pure joy is because trials make it personal. Trials make it personal. We read, continuing in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. You see, our relationship with God is different than our relationship with one another. You and I are both finite and we are limited in our understanding. We relate to one another on the same plane, on the same level. But God, on the other hand, he is infinite. He's eternal. eternal. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He created all things. And so when trials come, I can think that I know what's going on from my perspective and I can blame God, or I can submit myself and say, you know what? He is infinite and I'm not. He is all-knowing and I'm not. And so there are things that God knows that I don't know, so I need wisdom. Because even in the storms of life, I don't want to be double-minded. Sometimes I have my doubts, but I don't want my doubts to have me. Does that make sense? Because if so, I'm going to be stumbling around. I'm going to be going this way. I'm going to be going that way. That's not what I want. For example, over the last several months, I've, I've sat at the bedside of some faithful men and women whose health was failing. And how do I pray? Do I pray for a great miracle? I know that if I had a heart attack at my age and I was lying there, I know how I'd want you to pray for me. So so I pray, God, would you heal this dear saint? And then a couple of days later, she passes away. What now? And that's not the worst thing. The, the Apostle Paul says it's better by far. He says to die is gain. The worst thing is to live and die without Jesus. And for example, this one woman, anyone who was around her would always comment about how amazing she said heaven was going to be. So, so how should I pray? For comfort? For peace? For God's presence? I don't always know what to pray for. Do you? It's hard to know. But this passage is so helpful because it tells me what I can always pray for with certainty, with clear conviction, knowing that I will get what I ask for 100% guaranteed every time God will give it to me. What is it? Lord, I need wisdom. 
Father, please give me wisdom for this. I lack wisdom. I'm just a little child here. I don't know what's going on. God, I don't know what to do. God, I don't even know what you're doing. Please give me the wisdom that I lack. Please, Father. And when I pray that, I'm not being passive, but I'm not demanding my way either, as if I know what's best. I am saying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This isn't good, God, but you are. And there's a part of me that just doesn't understand this. God, I don't know what you're doing in all of this, so give me wisdom. Praying for wisdom may not give me what I want, but it gives me what I need. In trials, I find I need wisdom for the things that I'm not capable of understanding. I can't even control my own little life yet alone hold the entire universe together, and so I yield to the one who does. And that's a good thing, because what breaks my heart can also break my pride. The third reason James says we can have joy in the midst of trials is because trials strip away my pride. He continues in verse 9, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. The reality is, you and I are in no position to boast about our accomplishments or our situation in life. Why? Because everything can come crashing down just like this. In a moment, it can all be stripped away. James says here that the rich go about their business with no thought or inclination that they're fading away. In 2008, Lehman Brothers were the fourth largest investment bank in the United States. They employed more than 25,000 people. But on one day in September of that year, they lost $3.9 billion. Lehman Brothers fell victim to the huge subprime mortgage crisis of 2008. On September 15th of that year, they filed for bankruptcy, citing $613 billion in debt and putting thousands of employees out of work. And almost nobody saw it coming. It happened just like that. I think for me, a little closer to home, my grandfather was the healthiest man I knew. Never spent a day in the hospital in his life. Strong, active, vibrant, always working outside in the yard. He he would be building decks and sheds for other people. And then one day in his 70s, 70s, he was diagnosed with colon cancer, and, and a few months later, He was dead. And it happened so suddenly and so unexpectedly. The book of James is going to remind us that my life and your life is short. He's going to say in chapter 4 that our life is like a a vapor or a mist. We we often get fooled in thinking that, that, that this is what's real and that what's right in front of us is all that matters, but then we see a breeze just blow it away. So many of the things that we pursue in life, 
so many of the things that we compare against other people that they fade away. They don't matter at all. And it is trials that strip away our pride and they help us to see what really matters. Fourth and finally, we are able to have joy in the midst of trials because trials result in the promised crown. They result in the promised crown. James writes in verse 12, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, James isn't a masochist, okay? James does not say that we should love pain. He does not say that we should take pleasure and we should love it when we are heartbroken and hurt. No. The joy comes not from the trial, but from what the trial produces. In the end, we receive the promised crown. This is the great hope of the Christian faith. And it is this hope that reframes our troubles, that it reframes our trials, our suffering, our heartache. Our suffering is not in vain. It is not purposeless. We see this all throughout Scripture. This is a theme woven intricately throughout the pages of Scripture. Abraham didn't get a son, Isaac, without decades of infertility. Joseph doesn't become second in command of Egypt without spending years in prison. David doesn't get to the throne without being on the run from Saul and defeating Goliath. The Israelites never reached the promised land without spending 40 years in the wilderness. There are many trials that you and I go through that simply don't make sense. How many times do we find ourselves asking, why God? Why is this happening? And often, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why everything happens it does. But I do know that in the end, every wrong will be made right. In the end, there is a crown. There is an inheritance. There is an eternity with Jesus promised to us. And remember, Jesus doesn't experience resurrection and exaltation without the agony of the cross. Paul writes about Jesus in Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9. Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Yes, you and I receive a crown. But that crown is not to be worn upon our heads, but that crown is to be laid at the feet of Jesus. This Jesus whose name is above every other name. This Jesus who at his name every knee shall bow on heaven and earth. This Jesus who Revelation 4 verses 10 and 11 tells us that the elders in heaven, they take their crowns and they lay them at the foot of the throne and they worship God saying, you are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Listen, church, you and I can have joy in the midst of trials because we know that there is pain in the purpose. That there is purpose in the pain. There is a promised hope that we look forward to because of Jesus. 
And because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done, he is worthy of all of our praise. But if you look back at verse 12, you'll see that there is a condition to this promise. It says, the crown of life is promised to those who love him. And I think that's really the question today. Do you love Jesus? Have you received his forgiveness? Have you trusted in him for the salvation that he freely offers? If you haven't, then you will be defeated and you will be defined by your trials. If you haven't, you will be bitter and you will be angry and you will be frustrated and you will certainly not consider it all joy. If you're looking for an easy life, you will not find it in Jesus. Following Jesus isn't easy, but following Jesus is worth it. It is so worth it. And so I want to ask, will you respond to God's love for you in Christ and follow a Savior who is worthy of it all? Would you pray with me? God, wherever you go, wherever you lead, we're going to follow you. God, help us not to avoid or go around the things that are unpleasant in our lives, but help us to, with boldness and conviction and faith, be able to walk right through them, knowing that we are not alone, that wherever we go, you are with us. And the things that we experience in life that are unpleasant and they hurt and they break our hearts, they are not without purpose. That nothing in this life is wasted. But you use all things to develop our hearts and our character to become more like Jesus. To become completely mature. Thank you, God, for, for giving us that, that promised crown of life that, that we all eagerly look forward to. Help us to keep our eyes on the prize. Our prayer today on the first Sunday of the new year is for anyone who is not in a personal relationship with your son Jesus that today would be that day. What better way to start off the new year than to put their faith in Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins, to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, to be buried in the waters of baptism and to live a life fully pleasing to you. God, you came to change our lives, not to make our lives easier, but to change us from the inside out, to redeem us, to be part of your family. And when we belong to you, God, there is nothing that we cannot go through. You are with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.